0: Seventy-four, Psalm seventy-four. Got two more psalms after this one, and then we'll move into a study of the book of Titus. Does anyone want to guess what kind of psalm this is? Praise, Thanksgiving, Lament, Royalty, Covenant, Lament. So if you look at the first three verses, you can get a clue about that. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why did your anger smoke against the sheep of your pastor? And this is a community lament where Asaph, on behalf of covenant Israel, cries out to God in anguish. And then, remember, the laments are not just complaining to God. They they end up turning towards praise to God and, and trusting God. I shouldn't say praise, but turning towards trusting God to to rescue them from his and their enemies. Israel here feels abandoned by God and the waves of doubt have crashed up against the boats of their lives and they've been pushed out into the middle of the sea and and they need to find their anchor in God so that that they do not abandon him. And so we need to think about this with regard to ourselves. What do we do when we feel abandoned by God? When I first wrote up the sermon schedule for Psalms, I titled this, When I'm Afraid, but as I got studying it, it's not really about fear, it's more about being abandoned. And so I think that's a better title for the psalm, When I Am Abandoned. Let me read the psalm for us, it's a little longer, but I think it would be helpful for us to see it all together, Psalm 74. This is the Word of God. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. And now, it's all carved work. They smash with hatchets and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, Let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. Yet God is my King from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends forever. Uh, which ascends continually. Let's see how fast Paul is. This is a long theme, too, so you need this one on the, on there, but I'll read it for you. It is, um, When God seems to abandon His throne, believers must plead to Him for help on the basis of what concerns Him. When God seems to abandon His throne, believers must plead to Him for help on the basis of what concerns Him. This is where Israel is. They're in a place where it feels like God has abandoned this throne. It feels like God is far away. So in times like that, believers must plead to Him for help on the basis of what concerns Him. So we'll look at, at this um, each of these sections together first. Okay, let me go back for a second. I need to shorten up my uh, my themes here. Yeah. All right, number one. When God seems to abandon the throne, believers must express their suffering to God. Verses 1 through 11. This is what a lament does it ta- talks to God about what's real. And so the psalmist begins with an appeal for mercy in verses 1 and 2. Notice how he begins with two questions, why and why, right? Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Why have you rejected us? Why has your your anger tur- turned, excuse me, towards your own people? Now, why would they ask those questions? Why would they ask God, "What's going on?" And the answer is in verse 3. The reason that they ask the question, the reason for the appeal, the reason for the appeal in verses 3-9. through 9, Verse 3, the enemies have destroyed the sanctuary. It says, turn your footsteps towards the perpetual ruin. So, God's dwelling place has turned into a place where, just like an old, uh, an old building that's in ruins, nobody cares about it. It's run down. It's overgrown. Second part of verse 3 says the enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Verse 4, the enemies have taken over. The end of the verse says they've set up their own standards for signs. Basically, they're they're coming in to God, your dwelling place, and they're taking their flag and they're setting it in the ground. It's this belongs to us. Verse 5, the enemies have brought down. The sanctuary like a lumberjack in the midst of a forest of trees. Verse 5 says, It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees like a lumberjack. It's just in his heyday, right? He's got just a bunch of trees around him and he's got his axe all sharpened, ready to go. And this is what God's enemies are like in the middle of the sanctuary. In the middle of of God's dwelling place, the tabernacle. In verse 6, The enemies have brought devastation. Verse 7, they burned the sanctuary to the ground and have profaned what is sacred. The second part of the verse says, they have defiled the dwelling place of your name. God, this is the name, this is the place that had your name on it. And now it's destroyed. It's in perpetual ruins, it's burned to the ground. They have their flag in it. Your name's mud now, right? It's just thrown down as if it doesn't matter. In verse 8, they boast in their victory. They say in their hearts, let us completely subdue them. And then the second part of verse 8 says that they've burned all the places of worship to the ground. Now this is probably before the time of the temple because the temple was the sole place where people would go to worship God. And so prior to the temple you had the tabernacle and the tabernacle, in addition to that, you also had other altars that were set up in various cities like Shiloh and Mizpah and so on. And so this is probably talking about all the various Worship, places of worship all over the land. Not talking about synagogues or churches or anything. This is long before that. And then verse 9, The enemies have taken the prophets into captivity. We do not see our signs. People who speak on behalf of us, there's no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long, how long is this going to go on. And so they appeal for mercy. Why, God, have you abandoned us? Verse, verse 1, right? Why does your anger smoke against your own people? the reason we ask that is because your dwelling place is just a pile of rubble. It's of no value. And to make matters worse, in verses 10 and 11, the faithful don't know how long this is going to go on. The prophets aren't there to tell them. We saw that in verse 9. But notice in verse 10, they actually come out and ask God, How long, O God? Will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. So, not only do they not know how long, but they also don't know when God is going to come to act. It's like we have God on our side. His dwelling place on the earth has been torn down and He's sitting back there doing nothing. It's bad enough that We don't know what's going on, but the other bad part is that God's not apparently not doing anything. Now here we see again why laments are so helpful. Because they teach us how to take our concerns, our anxieties, and to bring them before the Lord. You see that in verses ten and eleven? God, our foundation has been shaken. Everything is unsettled until you return to your dwelling place among us. Why is this happening? How long is it going to be like this? Why haven't you responded in judgment on your enemies? And this is good and healthy for believers to do. This is good and healthy for us to do. When we are filled with anxiety, the best place for us to go is to God and just tell Him exactly what we're feeling. Now, I'm going to mention at the end that there's a wrong way to do that, right? Where we blame God or we condemn God for His actions and we never turn to the trusting part. And that's why this psalm is so helpful because he doesn't stop with just the questions of why and how long and what are you doing and how come you're not, how come you're not helping us. He doesn't stop there, does he? In verses 12 through 17, He remembers. he remembers God's rule in ages past. So when God seems to have abandoned his throne, believers must remember God's rule in ages past. This is what we need to do. We don't just stop at questions of why and how long and where are you God, but we remember what God has done in the past. And this is what the psalmist does in verse 12. He remembers God's rule in our redemption. He says, "Yet God is my king from old, from of old." who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. And so what the psalmist is trying to do is trying to piece together a puzzle that's very much unclear to him. It's like you've been handle, handed a pile of pieces that belong in a partially made puzzle, but you don't have the box, the picture. You don't know what the picture is actually going to look like. And you're trying to fit these things in. To, and this is what the, Israel is trying to do. They have some this new information that God's sanctuary, God's dwelling place, has been torn down, has been profaned. And now they're trying to fit it into a larger puzzle of what God is doing in the world. See, Israel is unsettled and restless over the destruction of the tabernacle. And so in order for them to to think properly about the circumstances through which they are going, they would do well to consider how God has worked in the past. And they would do well to consider how God is working in the larger picture, so that they can understand what is going on now. And that's what the psalmist does. He wants to, he wants to go back to the reality that God is their, here, deliverer. And then in the next verses, that He is their creator, His rule in creation. God is not only the deliverer, the one who has redeemed them. He's their king from of old but He's also the one who has power over creation. And in these verses, verses 13 through 17, He both tells how God brought all things into being with His great power, but also how He sustains things and overpowers things that seem to be big to us. God rules in the creation. In verses 13 through 17, all the U's, uh, if you have a, a Bible with marginal notes, then you'll notice that they all have a footnote next to them, the you in verse 13, and and again at the end of verse 13, and then 14, two times. All those yous are literally you yourself. It's highlighting that God Himself is the one who is over creation. It's not a plural you. This is not God you and the other gods. You hold all things into being. You're the one who brings up the torrents of water. No, saying you, God, you alone. You yourself do this. You have the power. Verse 13, we see that He created all that is. Verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. And then verse 15, you broke open springs and torrents. This is probably talking about creation or it could be talking about the flood. Then it says you dried up ever-flowing streams. Verse 16, yours is the day, yours also is the night. God is the one who divided day and night. You prepared the light and the sun. You have established all boundaries of the earth. You've made summer and winter. Here's God who created all that is, and then in addition to that, He also holds all things together with the hand of His power, or He overpowers anything that He wants. Look at the second part of verse 13. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. This could be referring to a nation like Egypt or something. Um, These powerful nations that Israel might have seemed big and insurmountable. And and the psalmist is saying, listen, God, you easily destroyed them. Verse 14, You crushed the heads of Leviathan, this great sea monster. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Again, could be talking metaphorically there for a nation. But whatever the case is, God's powerful over all His creation and He can do whatever He pleases. There's nothing that, that can stay His hand Right? There's nothing can, that can stop him and say, God, I know you want to go a little bit further, but this is where we're going to draw the line. Nothing can do that to God because God is all-powerful over His creation. So He brings it into being and He also overpowers everything that is. And so because God has shown Himself as the universal sovereign ruler of redemption and creation then here's how it applies to Israel and to us. We can bring our requests to the all-powerful, almighty God. Right? If He can do whatever He pleases, if He brought all things into being, then do we really have to fear the enemies who have taken over God's dwelling place? Do we really have to fear when we have on our side the, the one who separated day from night, the one who made boundaries in the water. you ever stop, tried stopping a leak in your house from outside the five inches of rain we had two Augusts ago? Try stopping that leak. You know how small as that is on the big scale of the waters of the world? Very small. Or try stopping a tsunami from happening. And yet what God did in his creation. Because He set up boundaries that would control the most powerful force that we have on the earth, likely. And that is the water. Water always finds a way. And yet God can stop it. And so if we have Him on our side, can we not take our request to Him? The one who's powerful over the sea creature, the one who's powerful over the strongest of armies, can He not powerfully reign over this little group of fleas that have taken down his sanctuary and that's where the psalmist starts to turn to hope doesn't he right he, he come he starts out with despair why have you abandoned us God where are you how come how come you're sitting back and doing nothing and then he turns and remembers God's works from of old how he is the ruler over all, over all things how he's the creator how he has this great power and now he's going to move to the last part of the psalm which is when God seems to abandon his throne believers must appeal to God for help on the basis of what concerns him or you could say it this way on the basis of what he values that's what I mean there so this really is I think the theme of the whole psalm but it culminates here in in the last six verses believers must appeal to God for help on the basis of what concerns him And here we see that God is committed to two, uh, to three things, or God is concerned about three main things in this song. Now, he's concerned about a lot more, but, but three main things that we can appeal to Him on the basis of these three things when we go to Him in prayer. Number one, His people, verses 18 and 19. Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned Your name. Okay, so He's saying, remember what the people have done to you, God, and to to your name, your reputation. And now notice this next line. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. What do you think he's saying there? Who's the turtle dove? Who's God's turtle dove? Talking about the physical, literal animal. He's talking about his people, right? You have this Delicate, helpless little animal that is no match for a wild beast. And, and Asaph on behalf of Israel is saying, God, don't deliver over this helpless little creature to this wild beast, these enemies who could destroy him in a second. It would be horrific to watch. God, Israel is your turtle dove. Protect them. You love your people. When God seems to have abandoned his throne, remind God that you are his people. Look back up to verse 2. Similar similar idea, right? In verse 18 it was remember this. Verse 2 it says remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. So God act for us. Act for us the way that you've acted in the past. Verses 12 through 17, remember You sovereignly ruled over all things. You created and overpowered your creation. God, you can do that for us. Do it. Because you love your people. Act for us in a way that you've acted before. So God is committed to His people. If God's committed to His people, then we should appeal to God on the basis of His love for His people. In other words, when you feel abandoned by God... One of the ways that you can appeal to God is on the basis of his love for you. God, here's what you've promised to me, and right now I'm in a place of great distress. My enemies are winning against me and against you, God, and you love me. I know that from your word. And so, God, I I want you to act on behalf of, because of your love for me secondly God is committed to the covenant or to his covenant excuse me God is committed to his covenant in verses 20 and 21 so first remember what these enemies have done remember your people verses 18 and 19 then secondly remember the covenant consider the covenant it says there for the dark places places of the land are full of the habitations of violence these places were supposed to be occupied by us. That was the covenant, God, and that's not what's happening. Verse twenty one, let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. God, consider the commitment that you've made to Israel. Don't you want to follow through on your covenant? Don't you aren't you the type of God that is concerned about your promises? And then thirdly. God is committed to His cause, or God is concerned about His cause. So, what we're doing here is we're, we're coming up with ways, based on what the psalmist gives us, of ways we can appeal to God on the basis of what He loves. And He loves His people, He loves to follow through on His covenant, and He also loves His own cause. Verse 22, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries. The uproar of those who rise against you which ascends continually. The most attractive thing to God, the, the thing that His ears perk up about, is is anything that affects the glory of His name. And so appeal to Him about it. Remind God that He is not being glorified as He should. Your dwelling place has become a mockery The enemies are walking through. They planted their flag. They're they're boasting about their victory over you. God, this is a smear to your name. And so arise, God. Plead your own cause. Don't let the enemies think that their gods are more powerful than you. Don't let those blasphemous fools have the last word. Stand up for the sake of your name, God, and rescue your people. Verse 23, don't let the enemies boast about their victory. Don't forget, it says, don't forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise, like a huge cheer that comes after a winning goal or something. And they're doing it because they've they've won this great victory. They've torn down God's dwelling place. This God of Israel is nothing. He didn't even stop us. See, they have spurned his name they've reproached him verse 18 says the foolish people at the end says the foolish people have spurned your name do you think god cares when his name is being reproached do you think god is concerned when his name has been spurned you see what's going on here the psalmist is appealing to god on the basis of what matters most to him the things that matter most to God include His people, His covenant, and His own name or His own glory. The psalmist is trying to take this bigger picture of what God might be doing and and reconcile it with this smaller picture of these dark puzzle pieces that don't seem to make sense. He needs to fit these puzzle pieces that don't make sense into God's larger story. And what the psalmist does know is that God is the Creator, that God is the Redeemer of His people, that God is always faithful to His covenant, and that this dissonant sound of God's enemies winning is not good. God's name is being defamed. And so on the basis of God's larger purpose, and because God often works through the prayers of His people, when we go to Him for help, God will act in a way that magnifies His name and that keeps His covenant and restored, restores His people. You know, God bears your burdens with you. you. saw that in Psalm 68. God bears your burdens with you. He, he does, he's not unconcerned. He's not sitting up there unconcerned about what's going on. And, and God is not unconcerned when His name is smeared. And so what he expects from us is to to be concerned about what He's concerned about, and then go to him, talk to him about it. Five principles to consider tonight. Number one. The pain of God's abandonment is real. The pain of God's abandonment is real. Now, how, how, can I apply, how can I imply that God abandons His people? Because you know, maybe thinking in the Old Testament, yes, God abandoned His people at times to, to give them a lesson. But but we have promises that He will never leave us or forsake us. Hebrews thirteen five. Or, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said in Matthew twenty eight twenty. And so I would agree with that one hundred percent. God never abandons His children. But are there not times when God seems far away? Are there not times when our sin sets up a barricade between a good and healthy relationship between us and God? And I would suggest to you, yes, there are times when our sin can put up a barrier between us and God, where it seems like God is far away. And the reason I know that is because of James 4, verse 8, where, where James says, Draw near to God and what? And he will draw near to you. What's the implication? The implication is that God's not near. That God is separated somehow because of our sin. And so we need to acknowledge that, that there are circumstances where the pain of God's seeming abandonment is very real. Now the reality is He's still there. He never leaves us or forsakes us. We have to be confident in that. But there are times when we set up a barrier where it feels like we pushed God farther away, where we need to draw near to Him. And by the way, the next verse goes on to say, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart. So that's the idea. If we need to draw near to God, it's not because we're limited in our understanding necessarily, but it's we're limited in our, our submission to Him. So we need to draw near. And so the pain of God's abandonment is real. So I guess the point is that we shouldn't just ignore it when we have that sense that God is far away, that God's not hearing me. We should should come to a realization that our sins could have put a, a dividing wall or some other challenge that's going on could have put a dividing wall between me and God and I need to figure out what God would have me to do to come near to Him. Number two, when God is far away, we should ask why. When God is far away, we should ask why. In other words, don't be afraid to speak honestly about your suffering to God. There is nothing inherently sinful about asking God the question, why? Why is this happening? Why did you take my son? Why am I struggling with this chronic illness? Why can I not get over the sin? Why am I estranged from my family member? There's nothing inherently wrong with asking the question, why, and seeking to answer that question, I would suggest to you, is actually a mark of maturity. What would you think about a child who never questioned anything? I first thought might be, man, that'd be great, right? Every time I told them to do something, they never questioned me. What's that? Yeah. But, but think about that for a second. What if he li- literally never questioned anyone? That any time any person, including a stranger, told him to do something, he did it. Is that a mark of maturity? The book of Proverbs actually says that that's a mark of naivete. Right, The naive believes everything. He doesn't question anything. He just goes right on and follows with what anybody says. And I would suggest to you that asking questions is at the heart of learning. That you will never be a discerning person if you don't ask questions. Why does Dad tell me that, that I have to go to bed at 9 o'clock every night? Why does Mom make me eat my vegetables? Why won't Mom let me go near the neighbor's Doberman Pinscher? You see, a child, it's good for him to obey, but still at the same time be asking why. Because there's going to come a time when Mom and Dad are not there to tell him what to do. And he's going to make, have to make a discerning choice. A child who asks questions is thinking about not just the command and learning how to be robotic. He's thinking about the rationale behind the command. Why is mom telling me to do it this way? And the more that the child understands the rationale behind the commands, the more discerning he is. So that when another situation comes up that's a little bit different from what mom said, then he knows how to respond. You know, Mom never told me what to do when I came across a boxer. Even though he growls and slobbers a lot like that Doberman Pincher when I come near him. Mom never told me what to do about a boxer. But, but you know, a discerning child will say, I, I understand why she said that. Because she's, she's concerned about my safety. And so dogs like that are not friendly. Those are not happy faces. Can I suggest to you that asking God why, okay, in parentheses, in a non-condemnatory way is how you will grow in discernment? Asking God why and seeking the answer. Now, you need to be resolved to recognize that you may not and often will not get the answer, but keep asking the question. And I would suggest also that why, when asked in the right way, is actually a form of trust. Even Jesus asked His Father why. you know the example I'm thinking of? Mm, uh, I'm thinking on the cross. He might ask why, and I'm trying. I was trying to think if he asked why specifically, but but on the cross. So what did he say? He's going through a time of suffering. He feels abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus condemning his father there, obviously not. So if Jesus can do it in a way that displays actually his trust in God by taking his anxiety, or not anxiety because it's not sinful, but but taking his concern to God and saying, Why, God? Why is it like this? That's actually a form of discernment, a, a form of trust. And we would do well to follow his example. God, things are not like they ought to be right now. The righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering and your name is being profaned. And it seems to me like you are doing nothing about it why God why what, what is it in your bigger picture what is it that I don't understand about your story that you are accomplishing in this why and how long how much longer before you stand you, you stop standing back and start moving into action how much longer When God is far away, we should ask why. In a non-condemnatory way, in a trusting way. That's what the Lament Psalms help us to do. Number three, one of our greatest weapons against the enemies of God is prayer. One of our greatest weapons against the enemies of God is prayer. The enemies that you have in life are not flesh and blood. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians six ten. It's not against the, the It's not against your boss. It's not against your spouse. It's not against your child. It's not against the government. Those aren't your enemies. Your enemies are spiritual in nature, and so. How do you defeat a spiritual enemy? What kind of spiritual weapons do we have to defeat a spiritual enemy? Well, we have lots of them. Put on the whole armor of God. And we can go through all those. Take it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? But do you know how that ends? It says and with all prayer and petition praying at all times in the spirit. In other words, all of those weapons of warfare, all those pieces of armor that you put on are all to be done in prayer. The, one of the greatest weapons that we have against the enemies of God is often unused. Prayer. We're out there, we're we're out here every day on a spiritual battlefield. And we can't defeat these spiritual enemies that we have. We can't do it. They are much more powerful than we are. But, we have a line of communication that is open with our commanding officer who can send in air support at any time when we call on it. So we need to use that prayer. This is what the psalmist does. He doesn't just sit there and say, wow, the the dwelling place of God is destroyed. What are we going to do? Let's make a plan. Let's figure out what we can do to, to set up boundaries so this is, can't happen again we'll start the rebuilding process. Now he goes to God in prayer. He tells God his concern. Asks why. Remembers how God has worked in the past and then prays for help. Number four, success in prayer is guaranteed when we align our cause with God's cause. This is why so important that the psalmist brings up this idea in verses 22 and 23. Arise, O God, and plead your cause. Because if we can understand what God's cause is, and we can align ours underneath what God's cause is, we will get what we ask for. Isn't that what Jesus said? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, John 14, 13. So I believe that if we pray in a way that is inconsistent with what God is doing. And we have no guarantee that God will respond affirmatively. But the converse is always true, that if we pray in a in a way that's consistent with what God is doing, with God's greater cause, God will respond. He's a loving Father. He doesn't give a scorpion to his son who asked for a fish. He doesn't give a stone when his child asked for a piece of bread. He's a loving Father. He wants to give us good gifts. And how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit when we ask Him? William Plumer, a preacher in the 20th, uh, 19th century, said this, "When When we can truly plead that our cause is God's own cause, we need never fear the want of success in prayer, though the answer may for a while be delayed. So when we as as one of God's soldiers out in the battlefield in the spiritual warfare, call into the commanding officer and say, Commander, we need some more troops or we need some more air support. When the commander recognizes that our call for help is in line with his overall picture of what's important, you know what the commanding officer is going to do? He's going to send the troops. He's going to send the air support. It may not come exactly when we want it. It may be delayed. That's what Plumer says. For Israel, they must have been completely perplexed because God had, in the past, defeated some great enemies of theirs like Egypt and Canaan, and now they're being overwhelmed. All this work that God had done leading up to this time when they could meet with God in this tabernacle, Gone. In a, similar way, in a similar way, we might look at the circumstances around us and say, you know, God has defeated some great enemies in the past, hasn't He? I mean, Christ, through the cross, has defeated sin and death, and yet, it doesn't feel that way. Sin and death are marching up and down our streets all the time, claiming victory over Christ and victory over the saints. And you know, sometimes we start to believe them. You know what? Maybe sin and death did defeat Christ. Maybe Christ didn't really win. But you see faith says no, we know from the larger picture that God's cause does not include sin winning. It does not include death having the final say. In fact, sin and death have already been defeated at the cross and it's only really at the resurrection it's only a matter of time before they have no more grip on any one of us and so we don't have to fear the sting of death Christ has defeated it through his resurrection it may not seem right right now but that's why we have to keep perspective right we we have to keep instead of focusing on all the the dancing in the streets from our enemies we need to keep our perspective on the end game the VE day is coming Right? When they will be completely defeated. The final blow has been been given, but there's still some some fight left in them, even though it's inevitable that they will lose. And then finally, number five, God's will will be done. God's will will be done, or God's purposes will stand. no matter what kind of tragedies that you face, you can be sure that they did not come as a surprise to God, but actually they were planned by God. You realize that the worst tragedies in human history were all planned by God. And all of those tragedies were used to bring about good. The tragedy of Joseph being sold into Egypt but God allow such a thing. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Right? You could go to the, the exodus. You could go to the exile. You could go to the death of Jesus Christ. All of those terrible tragedies were all planned by God, and yet they were used to bring about good. And so that means that we can be confident that whatever terrible tragedies that we have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience, all of them are planned by God and will be used to accomplish good. Even the future abomination of desolation that's going to happen during the tribulation. I mean imagine what the believers must be thinking during that time when the Antichrist comes in and takes over the Jerusalem temple and exalts Himself as the Christ, the God of all, and that all people must worship Him. How unsettled must the true believers actually feel at that time? Because it, it looks like God is being defeated. But if they know their Scriptures, and if they gain strength from the truth of God's Word and from the power of the Holy Spirit, then they will remember that God has delivered in the past, God accomplishes all things for his glory and for our good and that he will even bring the worst one of the worst tragedies in all of history the abomination abomination of desolation he will bring good out of even that and one of the ways that God brings that good is through our prayers God uses our prayers as a means to move into action and to bring about good all right Any questions, comments?